you know, most yeah. other shit, it's like, well, it's that's fine. really important and you don't want to do it worse. But yeah, yeah I was yeah. thinking about like, you know, I, my mind always goes into a spiral of worst case scenario. And I was thinking about like me as Nicholas Ray or Andre de Toff, yeah. like, could I pull off an eye patch? You definitely would Andy. Like yeah. you would look great with an eye patch, yeah, but I, I, I don't feel... think I could pull it off. No, 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 no. You couldn't pull it off. I, I no. feel it would make me look cooler, but with yeah. you, it'd just be like, Oh fucking Ryan's here. Like, yeah. don't <laughs> stare at it. You know? Yeah. It'd make, it would just make people feel bad. It would only work on me if I started wearing jodhpurs as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mars can fall it off. I go too. Fritz Lang mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to get the real, the, the big breeches. You know? And some of those leather boots with the laces that go all the way oh, to yeah. the top. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we can pull yeah, it off. Good you call. couldn't. No. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? Then crown them. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of... The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, joined here today with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, buck up against the topic. You know, we've had quite a bit of that last couple of weeks. Uh, it was my turn to pick. Coincidentally, we are recording on my birthday. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, buddy. Thank you. And so... The boys brought me some presents for my birthday. I asked them last week to do a little spotlight on a, a, a type of, of cinematic experience that we haven't really dived into yet here, I think, on The Gauntlet, and that is animated films. So I said, boys, bring me some little gifts for my birthday uh, bring me some some tunes. Bring me some some animation. Bring me some 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 stills brought to life. Uh, <laughs> and and did they deliver? Uh, and in the tradition of great great birthday gifts, uh, they were very surprising. They were the kinds of gifts uh, I didn't know I needed. Didn't know I wanted. And, and that's exactly what they did. So without further ado, let's unwrap my presents. Why don't we start with you, Ryan? Let's start with, uh, with what you brought. I sh sure thing. You know, I, I like the metaphor of, of opening up a gift as a big surprise because that's also one of the great kindnesses you can bestow a gift giver. You know, I've always felt like if I'm going to give someone a gift, I don't want it to just be something that's that's on their list, you know? Like when it comes Christmas time and my sister sends me like, oh, here are things I want for Christmas. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, I know you quite well. Uh, I'd rather 
provide something as like a bit of a gesture. And so when you had selected the theme of animation, I wanted to make sure that we had like a pretty rambunctious and a ribald time with whatever I, I came across. I didn't want to be too aggressive you know, with, with my pick um, in terms of it being uh, more austere. You know, I wanted something colorful and wacky and zany and sexy. And that's sort of the path I started walking down. I was thinking of like 1980s adult animation. I was thinking things like Fritz the Cat. You know, I want something naughty. I want something that's maybe a little upsetting even. You know, I wanted to just kind of shake it up and try something a little bit different. And I came across this film from 1985, a Cuban film called Vampires in Havana, directed by the great Cuban animator Juan Padron. And to give just a little bit of background on Juan Padron, he is someone I am, I wasn't familiar with before encountering this film, but I did a little bit of reading about him just to get a sense of who he is because he is a very established animator um, in Cuba. He's extremely well respected as a cartoonist. Much of his early career, he was doing animations for the Cuban military before the revolution. And then after the revolution, his cartoons got extremely radical and he is known for uh, a particular figure in, in animation, like a little character he's created that's like a symbol of anti-colonial cartoons in, in Cuba. He's like much beloved because of that. And this film, Vampires in Havana, sort of tries to maintain that streak of his radical politics mixed in with his zany cartoonist approach. The film is, I, it has like a ton of preamble, you know, this film like- Lore. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot right at the front to sort of set up the world of this film so I'll sort of just like detail that and we'll get into the specifics later on but the film is set in the 1930s and in its history of the vampires it talks about how the vampires of the world sort of began to unionize in the late 1800s and the 1870s and how there were different subgroups of vampires and these different orgs that were sort of competing and also trying to work together. Count Dracula was elected the president when he was stationed in Dusseldorf I believe there's like a Dusseldorf uh, group of the vampires and at the same time though there is the Chicago branch of the vampires that are known as the Capa Nostra, led by the, you know, sort of Al Capone stand-in Johnny Terori. So, essentially the catalyst for this tale is that Count Dracula's son, Werner Amadeus von Dracula, had been developing a serum to essentially vampire sunblock. He was looking for a way that vampires could sort of have a regular dose of something so that they can endure the sunlight and enjoy uh, the sweet, sweet beaches that vampires have been, have been longing for their whole lives. And initially, after testing on a bunch of vampire puppies, uh, he thought he had it worked out and it ended up being a disaster and he ended up killing his father, Count Dracula. And... This led to a split amongst different vampire groups, mass chaos, but eventually he did perfect a recipe of sorts, and he tested it out on his nephew, Joseph Emmanuel, who will then be known as Pepito throughout the rest of the film. And Pepito grew up not even realizing he was a vampire. And that's the present day of this film. It's set in 1930s Cuba as Pepito is growing up as a jazz musician, playing the trumpet around town and uh, getting up to hijinks with his buddies. 
And I guess the last bit of information for the plot I'll add in is that the mobsters have a sort of monopoly on indoor underground beaches that they're trying to preserve, and that's why there's a lot of contention between these various groups. There is the Werner Amadeus who wants to give away the serum for free, and there's the others who want to monetize it, and then there's the Chicago gangsters who don't want anybody to have it because they've got these underground beaches. So mass chaos, of course, ensues. It's a it's a pretty remarkable film. I was I was really laughing. I was having a good time. There are many elements that haven't aged particularly well, um, just in terms of like some of its caricatures. But it's still something that I think has like this crazy wild edge. So I would like emphatically recommend people check it out. The animation is pretty crude, all things considered. I mean, it probably didn't have like an exceptionally large budget, um, but it sure has a lot of character. It's got a lot of really clever visual gags, which is something naturally you look for in animation. And I was delighted throughout. I, I had a great time. The Chicago element was a big surprise, and I'm excited to, to chew over that a little bit. It had a big grin on my face every time Chicago was depicted in this Cuban animation. So that that was a, hopefully a nice little gift to you as well, Andy. Um, but yeah, so that is Vampires in Havana from 1985. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, you know, not to be too pedantic about your introduction, but I, you know, I would say that you know you mentioned Johnny Terrari. You you referred to him as an Al Capone stand-in, uh, but I have to point out that there is a gangster oh, yeah, yeah. in the film named <laughs> Al Tapone. Who that's right. I forgot <laughs> I think, about that. <laughs> Is the Al Capone stand-in, but maybe more of a Sam Giancana stand-in. That's what you should have said, you know? Yeah, that makes more sense. You're right. You know, again, there's a lot of different figures that sort of blurred together in my mind. You know, there are some people that seem to be representing the British and the Spanish, and I did lose track occasionally. Understandably so. Uh, So thank you for the the clarification. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Uh, All right, Marsh. Give me my present. What do we got? Well... It was a it was a tough topic for me because uh, probably to the surprise of no one, I'm not really an animation guy uh, in my heart, and I was I was really stumped, you know, uh, thinking about this, and then I realized that that's not entirely true. There is a certain animations that I do like, and they are typically of the more experimental variety and i was reflecting on you know the the 2010s i spent uh, many years going to the iworks uh, experimental animation festival in chicago put on by alexander stewart then uh, and that was very formative for me and kind of you know, understanding and learning about that world, you know, and and I could watch shapes and lines move around all day, you know, more so than I can, you know, bear to watch a a Disney film or something like that. So (laughs) um, that was the direction that I that I was leaning in. And I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, one of the more kind of fun figures in experimental animation, the filmmaker Jody Mack. And so my film 
is The Grand Bazaar from 2018. And uh, a gift from me to you, Andy. Many patterns and textiles uh, to grace your eyes and feast upon the, uh, the wonders of art and commerce and the global supply chain. And that's a lot of fancy words to say that this is, you know, uh, a stop motion animation, but also one that uh, I think bucks up against maybe the conventional or traditional idea uh, of what animation is, because Mac is is known for her stop motions, but uh, she has developed certain projects that are kind of you know, outside the realm of strict studio-based stop-motion animation. Um, And this started, you know, in the early 2010s for her. She did a film about her mom, the uh, Dusty Stacks of Mom, the poster project, which used live action and stop-motion to, like, tell this crazy, you know, story about a poster company or whatever, and it's, like, insane. Uh, And this is sort of continuing uh, this truly weird combination of documentary and stop-motion animation. So, I guess to just describe the film, it is uh, it's a visual journey through textiles, and it also is a, kind of a travelogue. The film was shot over five years in over 15 countries, uh, and it just started kind of intuitively for her, and she just kept doing it and meeting people and following this weird journey uh, and the result is this film which is uh, 60 minutes long which is very long for uh, a film of this type and a film that uh, I should also mention like goes very hard uh, in terms of things like really fast rapid cut kind of flicker style uh, animation to also like crazy time lapses of oceans and it's just like a very yeah it's a very interesting experience to me and so uh that's what i brought we can talk about the particulars i feel uh, already overwhelmed thinking about its uh uh maximalism i guess you know well thank you i would indeed share uh that that i i should say i i do share that sentiment because uh it is quite quite uh quite an experience uh it was quite an experience watching this film um and yes uh feeling like i've never seen so many patterns and textiles and and uh color samples in my life certainly not in a single sitting uh of of one hour so i i'm right there with you um, now it, it does also occur to me that even as we speak, you know, on a certain level, maybe somebody could argue that that really all films are technically animated films. Correct. Right? So yes. <laughs> it's all a series of still images projected at speed that that then right. you know come to life magically before our eyes. But yes, you know, my my thinking was in that that vein that you. Um, brought up marsh you know the the more traditional idea which is you know uh hand-drawn animation that sort of thing so so yes while on a certain level uh your film did surprise me because i would say at first glance it it sort of bucked up against my perception of 
of what I had in mind, you know, thinking of things like Akira and, and stuff like that. But I was very, very pleasantly surprised um, by the experience. And and though in their, their styles, in their approaches visually, uh, they are radically different from one another. Ryan's film is certainly, I think, what, what most people would, would uh, visualize when they think of an animated film. There were certain similarities. Uh, I think that both films at their core are, are playing with and exploring, as you said in your intro, Marsh, the, the complexities and intricacies of the global economy. Uh, yeah. In the case of, you know, vampires in Havana, it is, uh, it is this weird blood consortium that, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is being worked out by all these various vampire groups around the world. And, and the poor people of Havana find themselves, you know, at the center of all of this. And, and yes, uh, as the Grand Bazaar unfolded, you know, I think you really do start to see the really intricate woven web of, of, Things like pattern, color, line, form, you know, the the things that we have on our floors and on our walls and on our clothes, you know, these sorts of things. And and yeah, it was a very dizzying experience, but but at their core, yeah, I do see a sort of similar idea that's being played with. Yeah, and even in broad strokes, there's something about the Grand Bazaar that made me rethink about the way the world is categorized and archived you know i would there's a lot of sequences in the film that show for example how colors are depicted without color but as a form of patterns or how certain textiles can then be listed out through letters or symbols or numbers and it's just like different ways of Altering your perception, basically, is what this film did to me. I think, like, a lot of great experimental films will do that in the act of watching is, like, shattering your own perception of a particular thing. And I think that that impulse can be said to be found in, like, the satirist cartoonist. You know, you have Juan Padron, who is taking vampires as a way of trying to make maybe clearer to whether it's an audience at home or even a global audience, depending on how much reach the film ended up would end up having. It did get reviewed by publications at the time, like in the U.S. and, and other places, so it did reach. But thinking about the global economy, thinking about the, the, the ethos of the political system in Cuba and this idea of how things become monetized and monopolized and where value actually exists and why we instead of giving things to people for out of need, it instead just results in monetary gain, you know? And I thought using vampires in that way, you know, kind of it provide a fun way of reorienting your way of thinking about the, the world that's in front of you. And I guess that's also just a general animation thing. It's like an extreme version of our world as we perceive it, or at least how the individual artist perceives it. I've long perceived the capitalist class as vampires, Ryan, but I agree, <laughs> sure. but I agree with you generally. And, and I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that does connect these films is that they are political films. And while Jody Mack's film, I don't think necessarily is, is prescribing anything, the, the act 
itself is revealing political things, right? Especially dealing with this idea of, you know, fabrics and creation and the labor that goes into them. And then on the flip side, the labor that goes into animation, right? Animation is the most tedious art form on the planet. It is insanely difficult. And even just like going through thinking like, wow, what film am I going to pick? It's so hard because so few people have had access to, you know, the sort of like tailorists, you know, like factory situation required to create like bold, new, innovative animation. Like most people, you have to draw like or do what Jody does and just like do stop mo painstaking stop motion, right? And so there's definitely a connection, I think, in the Grand Bazaar, right, between these ideas of animation and labor and the global economy, not dissimilar to, yeah, what uh, Padrone is doing. I mean, even the setup of the vampire clicks is literally like the first, second, third world, right? Like, that's how it's depicted as this, uh, you know, capitalist sort of, uh, global economy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you bring that up because it, th there's a lot of that in the news. Uh, I mean, there has been for many years, but once again, you know, in terms of the exploitation found within the world of contemporary, you know, mass marketed, you know, animated films, you know, that, that those artists are some of the most exploited in the world of media today, yeah. uh, in terms of what they're expected to do, uh, the kind of money that some of those films rake in, and then what those people are are paid, and the hours that they have to work. So, it is, I think, very interesting that you you put it in those terms. You know, it's funny too because I think that sometimes the perception with animated films is often that it's you know it's this vision that a filmmaker has that they they look at from a, a monetary standpoint and think you know. There's no way I could pull that off live action, right? There's no way that I could pull off a, a conventional live action narrative. You know, a lot of animated films traditionally have been things that are are much more fantastical, uh, that there's just no way you could easily logistically pull those things off to bring certain things to life in that sense. And and I, I feel like Vampires in Havana is 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 one side of that coin of being like, well, especially for Cuban filmmakers to pull off this sort of globe-trotting, vampiric, gangster, action, comedy, revolutionary extravaganza, it'd be impossible. Animation is the only route to take uh, in their, in their, you know, to, to their, to their end. But, but it's the same thing with Grand Bazaar, you know, how could you pull those ideas off in a conventional way you you can't so you're left to do it in an experimental animation form such as this you know to to get us to as you put it ryan try to reorganize our understanding of textiles of patterns of color of shape especially in relation to the global economy right so both of these films are kind of like two sides of that coin of saying well the there was really no other way to do it than these filmmakers chose. Absolutely. I was thinking about that while watching Vampires in Havana, imagining 
the budget and the scale that would be necessary to depict some of these spaces, in particular these underground beaches that the Chicago vampires have set up. And I was imagining if Jerry Lewis, with his Paramount money, had constructed like a ladies' man type set in order to depict that like blood bank bar beach party because the camera, well, the camera, right, the, the animated image, um, does track in a similar way where as if it's like, you know, a Jerry Lewis film, like the ladies man where the wall is gone. So we start in the basement and we see all these vampires drinking blood that are coming from a tap of different human beings that are also at the bar drinking specific types of alcohol. So you've got blood laced with wine, blood laced with whiskey or gin. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, and we see we see the big indoor beach, and then we also realize that some of this is just underneath a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> there are people that have different IV tubes that are instead going into the ground as opposed to like the drip of their medicine. And yeah, I was thinking about how incredible it would be in like peak Jerry Lewis Paramount years if we had a set that was this insane Chicago gangster vampire city of sorts you know like in an entire building jerry's the only one that could have done it yeah yeah i'm, I'm glad you brought it up because <laughs> i i definitely like as i was watching it i was i was thinking like juan padron huge jerry lewis fan that's what i was thinking when i was watching it i mean this this felt very much to me like you know an animated jerry lewis film that's that's kind of how it felt to me that's interesting i think that's true because i think there's a lot of both like some of the sappiness with some of the friendships, but primarily just the broad comedy, a lot of the the caricatures and the way people interact with each other, especially just so many of the visual gags. I mean, Pepito, our guy, when he plays the trumpet, the vibrations are so intense that it causes all of the women's, their, their breasts to just jiggle uncontrollably. <laughs> they can't stop it because the waves from his trumpet are just, you know, permeating the, the atmosphere around him. And that's the sort of cartoonish thing you would see in a Jerry Lewis film or even like a Frank Tashlin film who thinks of his films as live action cartoons, yes. which is another interesting bridge, I think, between this kind of stuff and normal filmmaking, I guess. Yeah, and I think you can even connect a lot of what's going on in Vampires in Havana to the Keystone Cops. Again, a sort of like yeah. live action cartoon. Um, you know, being set in 1933 Havana, it's like under a military dictatorship. And part of the, the dark humor that's going on throughout the film is like the police state. Yeah, the national police also as a faction, you know. Yeah. Machado's boys. And the, you know, there's the captain figure who's portrayed as a, an absolute, you know, idiot. Uh, and his cops who are constantly crashing into uh, anything and everything right. in just like a huge bumbling way. And I found that to be, yeah, just another like layer of the pleasures of, of it. Yeah, a man who, like, sleeps in bed uh, covered with all of his guns on top of his blankets as he's being cucked by Pepito, like, next door, who's banging his wife. Yeah. There are a lot of—the the, the word cuckold was used as an insult, like, uh, at least yeah. a dozen times in this movie. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. But, yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because bringing that up, you know, and then again, thinking about, like, the Jerry Lewis thing, it, it especially, like, the depiction of the, the gangsters in this, 
it reminded me so much because it was so fresh in my mind of the Jerry Lewis Family film. Family Jewels, yeah. Yes, that we had discussed on this that features gangsters, cartoonish gangsters, prominent throughout that film. You know, the idea of a, of a man who is, you know, more suit and hat than actual, you know, man himself, right? Yeah. right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. And it's just so much of that humor with the Chicago mobsters really tickled me. I liked how they still primarily spoke Spanish uh, in those sequences, but with like a heavy Chicago accent, which mm-hmm. was very amusing, like still straining the accent like it came through even in the recitation of that. San Francisco Beach. Oh, Chicago Beach. Solo que necesito más dinero, wow. ¿Qué dices, wow? Puedes ganar el 300% en un año. Solo unos meses más, wow. Estoy esperando unos meses más hace tiempo, Johnny. No veo progresos con tus vampiros de Europa. But I particularly loved early on when we did have the one Chicago figure who was just like chewing up the scene, speaking English primarily. And that's when he's like asking for this recipe for the, you know, the serum for this, this, this new sunblock that the vampires could use. And yeah, they toast him, they roast him. And that was, that was another thing where I really like how gross some of the stuff in this was. So they've got the vampires there who are basically like the UN of vampires if the like you've got Spain who's sort of leading it and they at one point to sort of you know fuck up the Chicago dude they pull the the ceiling out from from above them and like a bright beam of sunlight just roasts him but it begins the sequence where part of him survives so you've got his like ash pile that's really gross of the Chicago mobster but his ear pops out and he's still like somewhat sentient and he slithers away and like takes a ride through the sewers that placed it a little more firmly in the 80s of just like underground nasty animation because the idea is implied he sucks up all the sewage as this little ash pile and becomes like a sentient turd of sorts (laughs) (laughs) that it just exists and is like then beginning a new chain of causing chaos from that point onward but tons of flourishes like that that are really icky that i that a sicko like me enjoyed yeah, and I think it's worth too uh, diving a little bit more into the the and I think Marsh kind of alluded to it already the 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 sort of I guess the 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 complexities as we've discussed this is described it in this film of these various groups and organizations, uh, especially in the context of Cuban politics and and the sort of Cuban view of this this global vampiric economy uh, <laughs> because I, it struck me that as I was watching it, I, I, I was, I couldn't help but sort of think of this as like, you know, uh, a sort of like third cinema Disney film yeah. on a certain level. Right. And so, you know, you have the, the sort of first world group of these Chicago gangsters, right? And then you have the second world group that are the European aristocrats, you mm-hmm. know? And then caught in the middle are 
the Cuban people simply trying to liberate themselves yeah, from... They're in a revolutionary struggle that they definitely don't need a, a vampire civil war to just, like, interrupt. Right. Which is what happens. Yeah, and they... I mean, even the, the words in that that opening section where they're, they're sort of laying all this out, you know, uh, it becomes very politically charged, you know? They refer to this civil war, as you said, as a, a death war, a cruel war... And and so I think very immediately the film like lays out like it's it's like kind of metaphoric quality for what we're going to be to -hmm. be playing with, you know, the Chicago gangsters who are on the one hand trying to sort of monopolize things and monetize things and the the Europeans who simply want to preserve their order, their way of life, their hierarchy and the Cuban people who are merely trying to liberate themselves and this formula that's sort of going to be the kind of like linchpin for all of this uh the 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 descendant of dracula it's 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 also made very clear that his ultimate goal is to give this formula out for free and i Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but also think about the the modern politics of of the covid vaccine and cuba's approach to it as opposed to America's and Europe's approaches to the same issue that we see then what 40 50 years almost later of of you know the first world the second world and the third world and what they feel uh is is the the right thing to do when faced with this kind of situation yeah absolutely I think the Disney comparison is pretty apt too because I even came across a like an, an obituary for Juan Padron because he died in 2020 um, from respiratory lung issues, but they're all pretty emphatically saying that it wasn't the coronavirus that killed him. I'm not trying to speculate or anything, but just clear in the air, I guess. But they, the one of the obituaries was like the Los Angeles Times that called him Cuba's Walt Disney, you know? So I think like he is seen within Cuba as that, as a symbol of that in terms of their animation, um, at least in the 20th century. That's amazing because, you know, again, thinking obviously always of Disney ideology, and then we have Juan Padron, who in one of my favorite sequences in the film is when the the European vampires, like the Dusseldorf gang, find out about the formula, and they're speculating, like, what they're going to do with their newfound freedom. And one guy goes... I'd go hunting in the morning in sport clothes. Yeah, the British guy. And the other guy goes, <laughs> May, the French guy goes, I'd hunt mademoiselles in the Riviera. <laughs> it's just like the funniest fucking shit of these like decadent European pricks, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, it's so funny and it's so laced with, with that humor uh, throughout. Uh, and, and again, never like losing... <laughs> the sort of like Marxist class like critique going on, especially with the uh, the underground speakeasy in Chicago. I mean, it's a literal demonstration of racketeering. It's like, yes, they're yeah. siphoning this resource out of these places, right? That's what the mob did, you know? And so showing us that visually, uh, yeah, like it's all 
it's all on point. You know, I was I was hooting and hollering in the good way. Mm-hmm. You know, more trumpet solos. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also really liked when they were making fun of Europeans by proxy sort of through Werner Amadeus when he is nostalgically looking back at his time in Europe. And Joseph mentions to him like, oh, you're just, you miss the days of the castles, you know? And he's like, no, it's those, it's those chilly nights, the, the sleet. I miss the sleet. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of, of a Cuban animator, like their understanding of Europeans, like their way of <laughs> mocking them is like, oh, this guy's just longing for sleet. He doesn't enjoy yeah. the warm sunshine we have down here in Cuba. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Cold, damp nights. Yeah. And, you know, to that end too, there's a lot of like jokes, I think, made also about... Uh, the way the Cuban economy is exploited by tourists. You know, there's so many jokes about tourists uh, in this, in this, uh, as we've said, this, you know, this complex sort of financial situation that the Cuban people find themselves in. And I, I just loved all of the barbs aimed directly at, you know, the tourists of Havana, of Cuba, which is even more funny to think about it Today, I mean, this is in the 80s when it was also still closed off mostly Mm -hmm. to American tourists. So for me, I was thinking about now, you know, all the people that I saw once, you know, I guess maybe briefly Cuba was was really sort of embracing once again, like American tourists coming down there. uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, just uh, how they sort of behave down there and and that. There could be this element of, you know, the vampires uh, sucking the blood of these tourists in turn, you know, sort of taking advantage of the tourists, you know? Yeah, that's funny. I, I was thinking about that, too, that, like, initial rush of people who were just, like, flying down to Cuba for, like, $70 Americans just, like, for those couple of months. People were just going nuts out there. And I also think you mentioning how this film speaks to Cuba's approach to the vaccine again all these like ripple effects that made me think about the contemporary world i was also thinking about the chicago syndicate's obsession with indoor beaches and creating a monopoly on it is actually kind of like a chicago thing because (laughs) that's like something the city has dealt with for a while in the sense of trying to make sure that the lakefront is like public access and like you can't build private property on there and i was thinking about the george lucas attempting to like set up that museum right there on the (laughs) on the lake shore you know just like keeping our, our public beaches public and like away from privatization so it was funny thinking about how strangely perceptive that was to the beach culture in chicago that there's like an actual syndicate trying to take beaches and like preserve them underground as opposed to letting vampires have access to a serum that lets them enjoy beaches on their own time vampire beaches inc chicago (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean it's funny though because now that we're like getting into it more you know it's there's a really strange kind of quality to this film, Vampires in Havana, that it, it, I kept feeling like this this weird uh, cognitive dissonance because visually it looks like like a like like Mr. Peabody, you know, it looks like this animation, yeah. this sort of crude animation from like the '60s, you know, uh, and yet it was made in the '80s, but it's also set in the '30s, and it's sort of addressing the Cuban Revolution of the '50s, uh, but it also resonates so much with what's going on in 2022. <laughs> so I was like, just. 
you know, in a way, you know, very similar kind of to the dizzying quality of of experiencing the Grand Bazaar and feeling, uh, you know, we were talking about Vonnegut earlier off the off the pod, but you know, unstuck in time uh, and space and space. Yeah. You know, I, I felt very much that experience with with both of these films. You know, and that's you know another uh, another connection between them is. Uh, sort of transportation and like transatlantic and trans well in uh, Grand Bazaar elsewhere transglobal uh, yeah transglobal um, but yeah like at a certain point the you know the Dusseldorf vampires you know they're going to go to Havana and, and seize the vaccine so they can you know uh, sell it in the free market or whatever and uh, they like pack themselves up in their coffins you know to be shipped. Uh, you know, in the the global supply chain down to Havana, uh, and was thinking about yeah, like in obviously in uh, in the Grand Bazaar, there's like a whole sub motif of uh, transportation, boats, motorcycles, buses, uh, and there's a good amount of a transpo in vampires as well that we see. Yeah. And I guess another thing I was thinking about bringing up Grand Bazaar again and these films' relation to each other and animation in general is the sound design. And that's something that I've always, you know, I, I do typically like animations. You know, I'm not like an animation nut or anything, but, you know, I like how you were mentioning you, you almost felt stumped, Marsh, but, like, you can't stump the buff. Like, you were still able to find something that, like, fit in, in your own type of uh, animation. But, I, you know, I, I, I don't mind them, and I... I've always loved sound design in animated films because there's so much more flexibility, obviously. And as I mentioned, you know, the animation in Vampires in Havana is like pretty crude. Again, they didn't have a ton of money. It was a small group of people working on it. And like one in particular sound effect became extremely grating for me. And that's just the, the shriek of the vampires. Oh, it, yeah. it, it almost felt like a Wilhelm scream or something. It was like one sound bite that they kept repeating over and over again. And we have the exact opposite with the Grand Bazaar. I mean, the Grand Bazaar's sound design is crazy. I mean, it's obviously very musical in its approach, you know, and a lot of it is literally performed by musicians, but we still have lots of layered sounds throughout the whole thing, sometimes that are in direct contradiction with the types of images we're seeing on screen. And I just... That was the most galaxy brain stuff for me watching this movie. I mean, I was obviously extremely impressed with the feats of animation, like the way she would frame textiles and mirrors and how it moved around in all of these spaces, but the sound design was just, it was just bravo. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also like worth, I guess, thinking about the film in connection to the Soviets and Eisenstein and Vertov, like in, in a variety of ways, but especially in the asynchronization of the sound, right? Like, we're almost never in sync with the image and the sound in this film. It is its entirely own layer of the film that is every bit as important as everything you're seeing, right? Especially the way it uses like factory sounds or the sounds of the loom or the sounds of the computers that are printing these designs, right? Really like, once again, kind of like evoking the labor 
through the sound and vice versa. So when we're seeing these patterns and textiles, we're hearing them being made. Uh, and not to, again, this, there's no plot here, obviously, but uh, you know, even at the end, the very end of the film, we are hearing yeah. Jody snap the animations, right? So again, like connecting that through sound, the invisible labor of, you know, the the textiles, the the fabrics. And even then the uh the the snapping that we hear of the 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 camera, the images being captured is out of sync with right. the editing of <laughs> you know the various textiles yes. and, and images that we're seeing. So yeah. it's its own sort of rhythm and pulse. Uh, yeah, I mean, like <clears throat> I, I went nuts when suddenly we had the the Skype remix. I called it. You know, there's just that <laughs> yeah, sequence yeah. where where suddenly, you know, again in thinking about global travel, global communication, uh, you know, Skype being such a big aspect of how people uh, from one end of the world communicate with another, you know, and especially for travelers, especially for people who are suddenly, you know, bopping from, from one place to the next, uh, Skype is such a, a hallmark of that. And so when the Skype uh, ringtone comes in but then transitions into a full-on like electronic dance number like I was yeah like, I was just like I was ready to jump up and start moving I mean it was great like it really was like very impressive the Skype thing like really almost puts like a timestamp on this movie too like it it dates it in a way that normally 2018 films wouldn't for me and I thought that was kind of moving in a, s a strange and sad way I mean just the jingle of Skype has been replaced by the silence of loading up Zoom hearing the Skype's theme remixed something that was so ubiquitous at the time now being something that is almost completely outdated because we've just all transitioned over to Zoom yeah or FaceTime you know sure sure the cold ring of the FaceTime you know yeah. Yeah, I think too like that's one of the things I really like obviously about this film is the rhythmic aspect to it, you know, with the music and with the beats. Uh and they all, you know, there's like a variety of movements throughout, you know, fast and slow and different kinds of tones and things. And also like mixed in speech as well. I mean, it's like god, it's so fucking layered. Uh and I think it really speaks to like this kind of structuralist side of her work, right? It's almost like, and probably not almost, probably definitely mathematical uh, in her sort of construction, you know, of the soundscape. And I know, um, you know, the, the poster project, she toured as uh, a live performance. So the film she made right before this, she sang songs and performed the narration of her stop motion documentary or whatever um, as this like interactive thing. So I know she's oh, wow. like a musician and, a, uh, you know, in that sense, a mathematician. And you feel that. I think the way everything is is calibrated so well uh, together, while also being yes independent of one another, like almost entirely. Because mm -hmm. there's definitely for me watching it, 
in discussing experimental film, it's, you know, it's, yes, there's, there's no plot in the conventional sense, right? But there are things that are being explored. There's ideas, there's themes, there's feelings, there are, are uh, flights of fancy, such as the Skype remix, you know? There are thoughts, though, that you can play with, that you can, you can on your own, like, choose to either try to draw connections to or, or simply uh, just kind of, like, bask in, in the overall sound and image um, sort of extravaganza. But for me, you know, it's like I really started to see, at least for myself, I think, like, some of what I found to be I don't know, the things that I could kind of anchor myself to, I guess, you know, which was that first sort of looking at these textiles and these patterns and just sort of thinking of them as these kind of like abstract bits of like line and color. Uh, and then seeing the way that Mac starts to take that beyond just simply like a pleasing bit of cloth to look at. You know, at first we start seeing them, these these bits of 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 woven material out in the world in nature. And I was thinking, you know, to, for myself anyway, that, that, you know, so many of the patterns that we start to see in these textiles, we would see, you know, uh, manifesting in just the sort of natural biology of the planet, you know, grass, uh, light, a sunset, color gradients, things like that, contrast, light, dark, that sort of Mountains thing. Mountains and diamonds. Right, absolutely. You know, we see <laughs> yeah. shapes that, that you know, are connecting the art of these woven patterns to, you know, the aura of landscapes uh, and, and the varied landscapes of this planet. But then also we start to get language brought in, as you said. You know, we get spoken words, but we also get various written languages and looking at so many of those as symbols as as a series of lines brought together that if we sort of step out of the structural quality of of language that we can just simply see a bunch of like shapes and patterns and things that get woven together to elicit meaning and feeling right i mean isn't that at the end of the day sort of what written language is you know and you you see then this this play between sort of like natural patterns and the patterns that are are built and created and structured by humans themselves yeah and even thinking about her just stepping outside of the patterns of narrative filmmaking and how that makes us see patterns and order and the way our world is categorized entirely differently. And it reminded me of when we did Stemple Pass and we were talking about how when you remove traditional narrative from a film, how there are so many little elements that can resonate so strongly and leave such like a deep emotional impression on you that traditionally might not normally. And like specifically in that film, we had talked about how in the midst of these long 25-minute shots of these cabins that James Benning was filming, the moment we heard an airplane go over, it was like a shock to the system. And it felt like an assault. It felt obscene that we would be hearing something like that in such a tranquil place. And I obviously was 
moved by the surface level beauty of these textiles and of these patterns. But it was at the end, as we mentioned, when we hear her cutting the film, that I started retroactively thinking about everything that came before and how rapid everything is. And thinking about every single stitch, every single cut, it was it was really overwhelming, just like especially since again, this was just her, just like the commitment of a single artist stitching together this for us. Yeah. I mean, in that regard, and you know, maybe this is just like too too hitting the nail like on the head, you know, too directly, but but I mean really that's what the film form is then, right? It is a yeah. it is a woven pattern i mean it is just a woven textile like we see in the film it's it's all these different strands of color and fabric that are are woven together and and you can sort of just look at this kind of like abstract design but you really do see and this film goes to lengths to show us this like how how much work and effort goes into that you know yeah. that 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 rug that's draped over the back of our couch or whatever, you know, our curtains, uh, your sweater, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And even just animation in general, like, I guess I should qualify what I said earlier about just generally liking animation. I would say I almost maybe don't just generally like computer animation. Whenever I watch like a 3d animated film, like I'm still really impressed. Uh, but I also kind of wish I was just playing it like a video game, you know, but like looking at animation prior to computer sort of, becoming like the dominant form mm-hmm. of animation or at least cleaning up animations and then thinking about what Jody's doing with 16 millimeter it is just I'm always so impressed it just blows my mind especially hand-drawn animation and stop motion claymation it still instills childlike wonder in me especially stop motion watching something like Chicken Run or Wallace and Rama today is still like a miracle I'm glad you brought that up because you know I think that there are you know, so many people that are now growing up in this era, you know, like sort of post, you know, computers really, really asserting their, their like dominance over, you know, that, that sort of world of like the animated image. Uh, and, and, you know, they don't necessarily think about that difference, you know, and they don't think about that choice of animation style and form uh, and what that means you know, to the overall aesthetic quality of one of these these works. It reminds me of an interview I saw once with uh, Marjan Satrapi. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Marjan Satrapi. She was a, um, an artist um, and a filmmaker. Um, she made a, a film out of a graphic novel uh, that she wrote, Persepolis. She's an, uh, oh, an Iranian... Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, an Iranian artist... And uh, when she was getting ready to turn her graphic novel into the film, Persepolis, she said that, you know, producers and, and, and things like that, they were approaching her and saying, well, you know, it's so much easier now to do this with computers, to just like use the computers to animate the film. And she insisted on the hand-drawn animation, that the thing about the hand-drawn animation, right, is that it takes a human being's physical touch, and every image is going to be slightly different than the next. You cannot perfectly hand-draw two circles even the same way. And she was like, this is about memory, and this is about the flaws of memory, and this is about how memory is animated, and that isn't 
perfect. You know, we don't animate our own thoughts perfectly. So why would I want to use a computer that's going to make a perfect copy of one image from the next when that is so, so contradictory to the way we sort of recreate experiences in our lives? You know, that sort of lack of perfection. And so I think, again, both of these films are, are like kind of a testament even to exactly what that is, exactly what we're talking mm -hmm. about here, that this takes a human being to sit there and painstakingly bring these things to life, to weave them together. Yeah, I mean, that's where so much of the character comes from in Vampires in Havana, just the roughness around the edges. I'd love to see this film projected, you know, like in a basement or something like that, <laughs> you know, just, just like looking kind of rough and dirty, but just, you know, you can really feel it, you know, mm -hmm. like there's, there's so much there. Yeah. And I think you see that idea being played with even in the Grand Bazaar, you know, it's very clear that we're seeing some textiles, some of these patterns, some of these bits of, of cloth, uh, that are handwoven, but she then also shows us the the sort of the arrival of kind of you know the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Right, we start yeah. to see like the machines at times that have come into this world to like mass produce these things as well. And I found some of those sequences so almost frightening in the way that they were presented to us. Yeah, they're really severe. <laughs> yeah, and and again, yeah, that idea too that like to most people and to us, it's like you can't tell the fucking difference whether this was woven by a, a family of 15 uh, or a, a computer somewhere, you know? And again, it gets you thinking about the contradictory nature of art and commerce, right? Forever locked in battle, you know? Like, and even thinking about that aspect even further of like, you know, global commerce, like who's appropriating who? Where do all these lines come from? Where do all these symbols come from? Where do these patterns come from? Everyone uses them. What does this mean? You know, like it's just like so rapid uh, and so huge. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's overwhelming. And I think the film, to a certain extent, you know, just kind of like instead instead of guiding us towards any like conclusion, is just like yeah. I don't know, think about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like training us for, like, yeah, different ways of seeing. I loved how when we yeah. see the shipyard and we see all the shipping containers, the first thing that would came to my mind then was, like, oh, it's like textiles. <laughs> Just seeing the colors of the shipping containers, like right. the first thing my brain thought was, oh, that's a rug. And even now today, just driving around, running some errands, I'm seeing things that are not rugs and thinking that's a rug. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what the Grand Bazaar did to me. It turned my world into a Grand Bazaar. We'll see how long it lasts. I hope for a while. Well, and I think hers too, because she starts to film, you know, certain things like symbols on a glass window of a business that are the exact, you know, replica of this pattern she saw on a rug somewhere. Or one of my favorite 
you know, cuts in the film is between these two taxis, uh, and then it that are have like fabrics draped over them that are being animated, of course, uh, and then it match cuts to two John Deere tractors, which are the same color yeah. and basic kind of shape as the taxis. Uh, yeah, it's like she starts to see you know mm-hmm. connections in the world between all this stuff, and I think that's also like a pleasure of the film is it feels like a person discovering something and creating on the fly, right? I mean, it's like a crazy thing to even do stop motion on location. And yeah, that aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, especially when you start to also bring in then all of these uh, images of maps. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that's really when it clicked for me that, yes, in in a sense, Jody Mackey's saying like, isn't this world just one big textile? <laughs> Isn't this just one big intricately woven blanket, you know, that we all find yeah. ourselves on, you know? Yeah. We're even in a library at a certain point, and she's, like, animating the dictionary and, and other shit like that, and we're, like, in the archives, and, like, fabric is spilling out of the card catalog. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, not to just, like, try to root everything into, you know, where we find ourselves today, but I think both these films invite it on a certain level. But, you know, you if you've looked even at what's happened to this fucked up global economy over the last two years, you know, it's like it is this this you see this this very complex woven tapestry. And if we take one thread and we pull it out and we start to tug on it, the whole thing kind of unravels, you know, in this really messed up way, you know, everyone, there's supply chain issue. Now, you know, you see that it's like, how the fuck can, can, can a dumbass war that's going on in Ukraine suddenly fuck up the world's food supply? You know, I mean, like really like that's, where we now find ourselves in this globalized world, you know, for better or worse, you know, there are, there are really beautiful things we've gotten in this world by pulling us all together, by tightly weaving us all together. But there's also this other, this, this other side of the, 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 the blade, you know, it, it sort of cuts both ways. It's good. And it's disastrous at the same time for all of us. Marsh, you mentioning the the just the logistics of shooting stop motion on location, like how much of a nightmare that must be. I did one of my favorite things about the film was how that was embraced because obviously traditionally stop motion is done in an extremely light controlled situation. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to make it even remotely convincing, like the lighting has to be so specific because the moment you start seeing light fluctuating image after image that just drives you nuts and it like removes the the reality of it but i loved how she used the setting sun multiple times to change the way you even see the patterns she has on display like you see a pattern you you have your perception of it but then as the sun is setting it changes the way these colors look it changes what pops it obscures parts of the textile and you have to you're only looking at one half of the pattern instead of the whole pattern and like everything shifts because of the changing light around all of these things pretty cool absolutely (laughs) yeah i mean like it really does like leave you speechless i mean when you watch something like this uh and you really like give yourself 
to it completely. I mean, we've 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 talked about this several times throughout you know our time on this podcast of of those particular joys of experimental film. You know, when I was watching uh, the Grand Bazaar, by the end of it, I was thinking of a line from Godard's The Image Book when he's sort of playing with, I think, a similar idea, but in a very different way, in, in Godard's own way, you know. Uh, but in The Image Book, he, he has this line and he says, you know, I need eternity for the story of one day. And I thought how apt that line was when looking at the Grand Bazaar. You know, I really did feel like what I saw was an attempt at eternity in 60 minutes. <laughs> you know, I really did start to think of the past, the present, the future. All of that around this big dumb rock that we find ourselves spinning on, you know, just just uh just slammed in there. And it, it really was like a, a beautifully overwhelming experience. And I think one of the easiest ways to get on the wavelength of Vampires in Havana is from that trumpet score that pulsates <laughs> throughout the film. That shit is so good. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up who it is. It's um, a man named Arturo Sandoval, who is like an internationally recognized trumpeteer, you know? And that the trumpet music gives the film so much energy um, and so much beauty too when it's like at times an ugly film you know and it certainly helps too when the film does like I, I think like a little it's a short film but and it is quite stuffed but it does I think get like a little bit bogged down in the like middle chunk when it kind of just becomes a chase film and it's them just going after each other and trying to take the serum all these different factions it seems like scenes sort of <laughs> repeat but there are like there's great moments like they, at one point there's even a heist of sorts and the trumpet plays like a very big role in that but I mean of the many reasons I think people should seek this movie out and you can find it on YouTube so please please people check this movie out but um it's worth just listening to the the trumpet music in the film is is fantastic I also I don't know if you guys thought this too but I I realized when I was watching it that this is basically the plot of Blade uh, <laughs> isn't this like Blade One? Because isn't it like the idea is like Pepe, he's the daywalker, right? Because he's the vampire who can yeah. go out during the day. And there's a lot of resentment from the other vampires because of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then isn't the plot of Blade that there's this serum that they've been developing that's going to allow... Uh, Steven Dorf to to be a daywalker himself, and the vampires are going to just be able to suddenly go out during the day. Like, it, should I'm, get a lawsuit going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cuba should sue uh, Marvel. I think is what's uh, yeah. going on here. You know, Ryan, yeah. uh, the the music did really get me on this movie's side, especially. Uh, towards the beginning when we see uh, Pepito playing in his band and they're singing a, a revolutionary sort of like all cops are bastards song at this cafe and it reminded me of uh, Gauntlet classic Court right where yep. we see the yep. really rousing kind of like protest song and then the cops show up and bust everything up so uh, yeah you know parallels through, uh, through Gauntlet 
at time. But yeah, that had me on on its side as well as the the heist, which involved a, a fancy safe uh, and other uh, nice little uh, sneaking around. It was a Benton safe, right? It wasn't ben- it? Benton and Son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, some sexy little touches in that heist. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Good bubble bath scene, blowing the trumpet in the bubble bath. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was kind of nice. Yeah, and that's really where, like... <laughs> Man, I, I was, again, surprised at, at kind of how, you know, uh, not to sound like a fuddy-duddy here, but how, how bawdy yes. uh, the humor yeah. got. You know, we get some it's full like, nudity. It's like crumb shit with the captain's yeah. uh, girlfriend or wife, like the big buxom blonde. Yeah, like, just reading a book called Sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, this movie's got full frontal. Yeah. <laughs> animated frontal you gotta love it yeah and i mean that's always something i found always just like an oddity in history and something that's remarkable because we talked about how it's it's so hard to get animations made i mean even when i was looking for films and just like pulling up a list of every animated feature ever made jesus christ (laughs) it's like the list isn't i mean it's long obviously because it's everyone ever made but it's like all things considered it's like it's not that much like feature animation because it's so hard to get one made and because the market is primarily for children it's so crazy when something sexy and weird and almost pornographic does get made Mm -hmm. you know so yeah throughout this film whenever we had full frontal nudity sex lots of bodiness it is just remarkable that something like this got produced Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know yeah because just the, the minute that you think that this movie is for children, uh, you suddenly get sequences of, of extreme violence or, or uh, you know, yeah, uh, wild sex uh, that remind you, no, this is, this is not, uh, you know, something to put your kids in front of on a Saturday morning. No, sir. No. I mean, there were a lot of people who got shot and stabbed in this movie. I was quite surprised. There's like a whole like Charles Bronson in the mechanic uh, subplot when one of the gangsters is like set up on a roof to assassinate, you know, Pepito and his girlfriend. Uh, And that's a very... A very comic and funny bit that I really like too, because this this sort of like hobo uh, <laughs> interrupts this sniper a bunch in like a comic set piece, yeah. and it was really cracking me up. Especially too, again speaking of the film's politics, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but he comes back and is put to put to good work in the end of this film. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't just you know throw him in jail like they do in the United States. You know, they helped out this guy who needed it. You know? Yeah. In a, in a, like, true socialist paradise, you know? Everyone has a job. Everyone's got a place. That's right. Even the bum trying to bum cigarettes off of people. <laughs> yeah, he saved their goddamn life, you know? That guy was had the, the whole thing set up, the mechanic. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk about my favorite character in the whole film. I don't know if you guys can guess who it is, but... Uh, there's one of the Chicago gangsters is this guy named Fade yeah. who uh, turns into an orb. Yeah, has an extra vampiric <laughs> power. Or he turns into a glowing ball of light that yeah. can teleport. And then he teleports. But like the way he's drawn when he does his little teleport 
made me laugh like 20 times straight. And it's the same little like weird pose that he does, (laughs) like where he puts his feet and hands together and is like floating and then turns into this orb. But we just like see him coming in and out of these rooms like like all the time. I don't know. It also seems that he only would teleport like four or five feet at a time, you know? It wasn't like, (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't over great distances. Yeah, it like really wasn't that much of a help to their gang no you know but a lot of time was spent like waiting for him to come back we need fade to get us through this door you know (laughs) go unlock that door from the other side that was his power you know i thought you were gonna talk about the really shorty gangster guy oh yeah i liked him a lot you know because i love that when they like the 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 one moment where they like kind of like go they're like chicago they go to chicago uh it's just like, it was just like literally like just gangsters and cops just like machine gunning each other in the streets. Like it looked like outside the field museum, yeah. you know, it's just. Okay, boys, come on. And that was just like in transition. That was just like a guy trying to get from one, from like one club to the next over. Right. You just have to like just just have a, a gunfight with Chicago cops. Yeah, this really is kind of like a precursor to Heat. You know, it is very <laughs> much like the cop gang, the, the gangster gang, and everyone is just going at each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I love that. Yeah, I love that vision uh, from the perspective of the Cuban. You yeah. Know? I guess if talking about like some of our favorite characters, my in moments like my my favorite moment definitely is when they during this extended chase that much of the second half of the film is is made up of they enter into a movie theater oh, yeah. that is playing a vampire film that was so delightful yeah. a and live funny. action uh, vampire film <laughs> exactly yeah so there's like a bit of like yeah hybrid quality there I loved because they're watching it and when the audience is reacting in fear to the displays of the vampires at screen we realize that the vampire UN like in the midst of their chase has just decided to also watch the film in the back row and they're cackling they're loving every second of the, the violence that's on display and when the audience breathes a sigh of relief when a you know like a crucifix enters the scene to to subdue the vampire all of our un guys just like you know go into panic i didn't figure out like if that footage was pulled from another film or if they maybe shot that (laughs) for the movie but it was a very funny scuzzy looking vampire movie. i feel like they shot it i mean because it was like in the style of a silent film you know like clearly they were like riffing on like nosferatu because it's 1933 you know in the in the film or whatever because they have on the marquee it's like an rko cinema and they have like tom mix and greta garbo like (laughs) showings or whatever um i was surprised too because i feel like you know, obviously vampires are such a huge obsession in both literature and, and film especially. And it always feels like every vampire film is trying to come up with a clever new like spin on the vampire mythos to like add into their film to spice it up. And 
there was something about just like this film from the 80s from Cuba that like did surprise me how many like clever little vampire gags existed within it that surprised like a guy who's seen like obviously a ton of vampire movies i loved how they treated certain blood types as fine wine specifically the you know o positive um type blood like that is like a a rare vintage like whenever it was a special occasion you know Werner, like like, i've got something very big to reveal tonight joseph pepito like you can't leave like i i'm bringing out the the o positivo you know like (laughs) that was very funny well, I think, too, just like, the, yeah, the the sort of like third cinema aspect of it really resonated with me in the humor, too, especially like what you're saying is like distancing itself from like Dracula, which is so European, you know, and there's a yeah. gr- there's a great bit when Pepito and Lola are like on the run uh, and they hide out in this hotel and then the European vampires show up and they're like, we'd also like a room. And the <laughs> the person at the hotel goes this is for normal couples and not Freudians like you. Yeah. And what, <laughs> so again, this, yeah, you know, mocking the, the sort of perverse Freudian Europeans, you know, uh, was cracking me up. Yeah. Yeah. And we obviously like, don't really need to get into some of the weeds of like the, the race stuff in this movie, but I did like <laughs> when they were mocking the British representative who is like dressed in like a safari hunting outfit. And there is a moment where he like talks about his hatred of black people and his disgust of them and how he wants to hunt them. And then of course this comic rendition of that is he falls in love with a black woman in Cuba, you know, like pulling, just like revealing the hypocrisies of this vampire, this British vampire. So yeah, they, there were certainly a lot of third cinema qualities I really loved in terms of them just going guns a blazing towards the Europeans. Yes. But as you point out, there are some things for people who may, who may enter this film that, that yeah. you will find, uh, don't quite hold up very well in 2022. No. Yeah, it's a fair warning for people to check it out. Again, I would still, you gotta see it. I had a lot of fun, but there are just, yep, the no going into it that there are some upsetting things that feel totally at odds with the rest of the film. Um, So, something that just, like, if you want to experience the film has to be, has to be dealt with a little bit. You know, something that I love, too, about the film is how Pepito, like, wins the day. You know, mm-hmm. his his own act of political rebellion, he is able to get the serum out to the public and he delivers it with style. Yeah. You know, they they think they finally bested him. The Chicago mobsters decide to like strike up a deal of sorts with the Europeans where they can figure out a way of monetizing the serum, coming up with advertising plans, but still preserving some of these like private beaches that the mm-hmm. Chicago folks yeah, want to the first world and the second world are going to create their little uh their little order their little like working relationship that's going to keep the third world uh in its place and pepito is able to upset that exploitive balance he certainly does and that's with his magical trumpet over the radio this trumpet can do everything it can get, it, get it, your clothes <laughs> off you know it can 
It can upset the the, the global financial gangster order of vampires. <laughs> but yeah, he does. It. The film ends with him like singing the recipe on the airwaves, and we have footage of different vampires all over the world frantically scribbling down all the you know the little bits of um, of stuff that they need. Three quarter ounces of sugar cooked at this temperature. Um, it's a lovely song. I've never heard a recipe sung so so beautiful. Yeah, take that Pfizer. Yeah. yeah, and he performs at the uh, the Pepe Club, you know, which is his club, which also features every single person in the film is now employed uh, at the Pepe Club. And in front, there's a, a statue of his uncle with, uh, you know, holding like a, a, the serum and like water is flowing like fountain, out of yeah. it, like a fountain to give the medicine to the people. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a great little ending that ties everything together. There's a vampire baby alluded to, and uh, there is a sequel to this film. Yes. Yeah. Which I haven't seen. No. So me either. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't able to find too much about it. I there was a third one that was like in the works. I think when Juan Padron died. Maybe I know his son uh, is involved in his like estate. Who knows? Maybe he'll take up animation as well and we'll get another one but i mean again i i just have to i have to say it you know when i was going into this i looked at these two films and you know i i opened my presence and of course was very surprised it was you know not what i expected at all and i thought here we go these are two films that are so far apart i can't possibly uh, bring them together on this podcast with you boys, and and lo and behold, we did it again. <laughs> you know, both of these experiences <laughs> <Happy birthday. laughs> at their core. You know, they they had my head spinning. They had me thinking about the way the very world I live in is ordered, is structured. You know, and 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 one made me laugh, and and one like touched me. It rocked me to my very core. It made me blink a lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I, I really was impressed, you know, by by the 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 strange pattern we wove together here with with these two films, you know. Well, I guess then I would ask: Are there any other animated films that have shook you in that way, or just perhaps are there animated like an animated film you just love that's close to your heart? I mean, I I you know I watch a lot of animated films. I I um I really do like. Uh, like a lot of different stuff. I mean, I feel like we kind of also, uh, we grew up at a, at a time that was sort of like a golden age for, uh, animation that was becoming a lot more adult oriented and, and, and stuff like that, whether it was, you know, as a young, young person, very first time seeing things like the Simpsons or going through adult swim as things were getting much more sort of, you know, the underground was entering, I think, a more mainstream era, but I think two that come to mind um, also fit into that sort of like hybrid model of filmmaking we have discussed recently on this podcast. One of which I show in my aesthetics class every quarter, um, the the Israeli film Waltz with Bashir. I think that's a, a, a very interesting hybrid animation documentary film that uh is really, really, I think, uh, a tremendous, tremendous bit of filmmaking. And I'm also a big fan of of Linklater's work with rotoscoping. Uh, I mean, I love Waking Life, but I really, 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 really dig A Scanner Darkly. I think A Scanner Darkly is 
is an awesome film. So those are those are a few that sort of pop into my head. But nice, yeah. I think we should do doc animation one day. There's a lot of those I've seen that I think are really cool. Like we the just missing did. Picture. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well. It was my turn this yeah, week. Yeah, it was your your turn, birthday boy. <laughs> and I believe it's Ryan's turn next. Uh-huh. That's true. That's true. So um, Cormac McCarthy has two new books coming out this year, and I'm very excited about that. I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan, and so I was rereading some of his books, uh, particularly the Border Trilogy. I read those, I think, when I was too young, uh, and <laughs> it was pretty revelatory returning to them, uh, particularly The Crossing. I think The Crossing was a book I had completely written off, and now I think it's like just as good as Blood Meridian and Suchery. It's just one of the best books I've ever read, and I was so deeply moved by it, and it got me thinking about just what's going on in that book like these crossings these metaphorical crossings on these borderlands and all the things that the character billy goes through like crossing over the border into mexico and i was thinking about the idea of a border as this space and the way it's been represented in cinema so my topic for next week is borderlands give me films that are set alongside borders of nations um, and the types of metaphorical crossings people have between those nations. It does not necessarily need to be the United States and Mexico. It can be any borderlands that, that you might think of. So that's what I'd like to explore next week. Interesting. All right. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at gauntletmovies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Esta reunión es para tomar una decisión importantísima. Aquí a mi lado, Mr. Going Down, representante de Mr. Johnny Terrori, de Vampire Beaches, Inc., Chicago. That's right. Es porque una reunión del grupo a las 9 de la mañana. Una hora absurda, vaya. Mr. Terrori. Quiere comprarnos el viejo castillo de los Von Dracula y montar bajo él lo que sería Dusseldorf Beach, la primera playa para vampiros aquí en Europa. That's right. Pagaría la suma de mil dólares. Joder, este tío está cachondeando. Mil dólares. Puesto es un asalto a mano armada. Nada detiene el progreso, señores.